Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Richie Khan, was working in ophthalmology when he discovered that he had significant visual impairment. The initial diagnosis was frightening. He was told that he had a life-limiting condition which included loss of vision. This diagnosis was corrected thanks to Richie's own resilience and resourcefulness. Here to tell his story is Richie Khan. Richie, I'm delighted to welcome you to this conversation. I'm so pleased that we were able to connect. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Moyas. I'm really excited for the conversation. I want to start your story before the critical moment in the story. So that's before March 2019. Tell us what Richie Khan was doing at the time, what your hopes and aspirations were, and how life was working out for you. So I'll start, I guess, a little bit earlier than that. So I am a public health and advocacy professional by training, fell in love with clinical research 13 years ago. And in 2019, I was working in clinical research in ophthalmology, essentially as a traveling salesman, when I learned that I was going blind due to a rare orphan disease called Wolfram-like syndrome. I got into research and I got into health policy before that really for the same reasons. So I come from a family of nurses in particular. I volunteered on the back of an ambulance myself. And as much as I enjoyed working with patients, I was always more interested in larger structural changes than I was in one-to-one patient interactions. So what got me into clinical research was the same thing which got me into policy 13 years before, which really was the ability and the desire to impact multiple patient lives at once. So that's what I was trying to do in the field of ophthalmology back in 2019. Tell us about the day that you decided there was something wrong and it's interesting that the issue was an eye issue. So as so often happens in ophthalmology, and maybe I should have known better, actually working in the field, I learned the hard way that oftentimes you can have something going on with relatively few or no signs or symptoms. I had been noted as a glaucoma suspect a number of years prior to this, say 2014. Had a big clinical workup. It was about eight hours long from a key opinion leader who said, you know what? You're in good shape. You don't have glaucoma. I actually had to beg my way back into my optometrist for my eye exams. And we kind of agreed, okay, we'll follow this. We'll do a couple extra exams, evaluations. And then life happened. She got busy. I got busy. We didn't keep up with the exams as much as we would like. But I was just visiting for a regular eye exam. And at the end of my appointment, I remember my doctor looking at her files and she just went, oh no, this, this doesn't seem good. So I kind of laughed and I said, well, what's going on? And she took a deep sigh and went, okay, before I, I tell you anything, you know, I think we need to revisit the glaucoma uh, diagnosis, but I want to spend some time today looking at your current records from your exams this afternoon. We spent about three hours doing these exams, the OCT and visual field tests, just to make sure that the equipment was working correctly. And she said, I want to compare them to historical readings. I'll I'll get back to you. I'll send you a note. I'll make a phone call. And sure enough, she got back to me, not the next day, but 
three, four days later. She said, I've got to refer you out to a glaucoma specialist. Made the appointment. My wife came with me and I walked in the door with a big smile on my face. I shook hands with my new doctor, Azra, and I said, Azra, I've got good news and bad news. And she didn't know where this is going. I said, first, I guess the good news and really, Azra, it's actually bad news and worse news. So the bad news is I work in ophthalmology. I know very little, but I know just enough to be a pain in your butt. And the worst news is I'm a patient advocate, naturally. So I'm really going to make sure that I'm vocal about what I need and how we can work together to, to get there. And this was a conversation that she wasn't expecting. She smiled ear to ear. And I kind of knew that we would get along beautifully. One of the things I did the day I got that initial diagnosis of glaucoma, I mentioned I was working in sales. I'm also an advocacy guy by training. I was wearing both hats. So I went on the internet. I found the Glaucoma Research Foundation. I think they had a team of 12 at that point. And I tracked every single one of them down. I said, how can I help? I want to build awareness of not only clinical research as an option, a care option, but I also want to build awareness of the importance of getting screened for symptom-free vision loss. And about eight months after that conversation and the glaucoma diagnosis, I was at the American Academy of Ophthalmology meeting. I was at a social function, Glaucoma Research Foundation. I was facilitating, and they said, we want to introduce you to this key opinion leader. And this gentleman said, come to Philadelphia, see me at Will's Eye. I want to take a look at you myself. So I'm from Philadelphia. My wife wanted to visit. And we went back. I think these were the only two appointments that she's ever uh, been to with me, interestingly enough. Gentleman looked at my records. He looked at my visual fields and my OCT. And he said, well, number one, you've lost about 15% of your eyesight. Number two, I'm concerned you might have a brain tumor or you might have experienced a series of strokes. Your optic nerves are pale. So we spent the holiday getting worked up, all sorts of imaging, neuroassessments. Everything was unremarkable. So this key opinion leader said, Okay, I've got a colleague on the 11th floor. I'm on the 8th floor. Will I go see the neuro-ophthalmologist? So I went. I saw the neuro-ophthalmologist. We spent about four hours together. He said, I don't know what's going on. And out of frustration, he threw his hands up and said, swab his cheek. Let's do a genetic test. So this was the end of 2019. It was about two weeks before New Year's. I got a phone call about two and a half months later from the practice manager on a Friday afternoon. They said, your test results have come back. The doctor would like to speak with you. Can you talk Monday at noon? And I tried not to read into it. This is a clinician that really doesn't talk with patients much. He looks at imaging of nerves. So the bedside manner was maybe not what I had hoped for. And it was the following Monday that I got my actual diagnosis of not even Wolfram-like syndrome, but Wolfram syndrome. And the way it worked, the doctor got on the phone. I think it was about a 35-second conversation. I could hear from his tone of voice he was uncomfortable with what he was about to share. The information was unfamiliar. I could tell from the way he was thrown off a bit by hearing me typing in the background that I was looking at the same information he looked at, which was our friend, Dr. Google. And the doctor said, your test results have come in. You have a condition called Wolfram syndrome. You need to consult a genetic counselor. 
he knew at this point that I'd read the same exact information he had read. He thought he was telling me two-thirds of patients are dead by 30 years of age. I was a few years past that. And he thought he was telling me, in addition to the optic atrophy, which I have, there's sort of a classical presentation where I should have become insulin dependent 25, 30 years prior. But he believed he was explaining that I would wind up dying similar to the way patients with Lou Gehrig's disease die or the brainstem atrophies, you struggle to breathe, but you're very much aware of it. And that's why he was so uncomfortable. So I remember I could hear him taking the old school telephone away from his head. He was about to hang up. And I kind of gritted through my teeth and said, can you send me the test results? I said, okay. Got the test results. I was reviewing them uh, with some good friends who were clinicians. And they said, look, we're not familiar with this ultra rare disease, of course. But if what he's telling you is accurate, these, these tests are pretty well infallible. And I remember this day quite clearly because I had to go to a conference for work the next morning. I could not change my flight. And I remember walking into the kitchen and telling my wife what was going on. She knew I was having this conversation. And I think she's still unnerved to this day. I am elapsed Buddhist. I used to go to a, a Sangha, a Korean temple for 15 years. I am, shall we say, very comfortable with impermanence and things changing. And the way I looked at it, you know, it was last year I could see fine. At this point, I'm legally blind. My brainstem was solid and I was able to breathe on my own. Things change. And then I got on a plane a few hours later. And the last thing I'll say here before I took off for Florida, I remember looking online, looking at Wolfram syndrome, and I learned that there is a doctor, Dr. Fumi Arano, who's now at Washington University of St. Louis. I wouldn't say Fumi is a key opinion leader. He's, he's pretty much the only key opinion leader in this ultra-rare disease. So I sent him a note, and I explained the diagnosis. And he messaged me back within two hours. He said, I'd like to schedule time for you, me, your wife, and my research nurse, Stacy. So there was a four-day period of time between diagnosis and the call with Fumi. And I remember taking that call from a hotel room at a convention center in Orlando, Florida. I was taking curious notes. My wife was taking curious notes from 11 hours away in North Carolina. And I remember when we got to the end of the call, Fumi said, if there's one piece of advice I can give you, it's don't believe everything you've read on the internet. And I kind of laughed and I said, Fumi, I'm fairly pragmatic. I don't believe everything I read. You know, I've got healthy skepticism, but I'm a little puzzled. And he smiled. And he said, well, why are you so puzzled? And I said, well, everything I've read has been peer reviewed and you're the primary author. And I didn't think it was possible for him to smile any wider, but he did. And he said, yes, but most of what I write about is Wolfram syndrome. You have Wolfram-like syndrome. And it was like a record skipped. I didn't know what this meant because I'd never heard of it, but I knew it was going to be important. And he explained that I will not be experiencing brainstem atrophy. Going blind at a, a different rate and, and faster and more extensively than I think any of the other 16 patients he had dealt with, but I was pretty okay with that. It seemed like a, a second chance uh, at life here. So that was 
the initial diagnostic journey and how I got to not even just March 2019, but February 2020 when I got the, the correct diagnosis finally. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. You couldn't write that as a Hollywood script, could you, if you were trying? You couldn't tell a similar story. I mean, extraordinary. Well, first of all, congratulations on your perseverance, because that effectively got you to the correct diagnosis away from the edge. You were looking at oblivion, weren't you? You were looking at a situation that potentially could have been quite horrible for you and for your wife. Absolutely. How were you coping at that time? What were you what were your thoughts and feelings? You were in between diagnoses, you were facing the worst possible outcome. And yet here you were going to Orlando and going to conferences and functioning as if everything was fine. One of the things I did immediately following that glaucoma diagnosis, I was trying to figure out, I knew at this point that traveling 70% probably wasn't something I should be doing anymore. I wanted to spend more time at home, the wife and our dogs and going through orientation and mobility, learning how to pour coffee, cut onions, not trip over to lovely pit bulls that don't know what personal space is, <laughs> follow dad everywhere. I've managed to achieve none of those things, though I am spending more time with the family, which is great. But I said, part of that is going to be making the move out of sales. I would like to get back to advocacy, but what would that look like? Where do I even go? And I started racking my brain and I had met an advocate in the oncology space probably four years prior. And I remembered we were connected on LinkedIn and I, I sent him a note. He was consulting at the time and like a good consultant, he pretended he had any idea who I was, but he took the call and I explained what's going on. He said, well, I think you'd be great actually in advocacy. And he connected me to a company he was working with. And as a result, I had the privilege and the, the good fortune of starting to build my network of patients, caregivers, and care partners involved in advocacy. And three years on, this is the work I'm doing full time. So how am I coping? I get to talk with advocates all day, every day. It's uh, one of the coolest jobs in the world. And it's a good opportunity for everyone to sort of talk things out, you know, to have a sounding board, to have a supportive network to bounce ideas off of, and to just sort of talk about what you're going through. So I was able, by, by dumb luck, I think, to seamlessly make that transition and to build my support system at the same time, which was completely unexpected. And I have to ask, how was your wife coping with this? She's a roller coaster ride. One minute she was being told you were going to be blind and potentially would die at a very early age. The next minute it was Wolfram-like syndrome, which wasn't as bad a diagnosis. How did she negotiate all of that? You know, I think it's been harder on her than me because she's trying to help. This is a disease without any treatment. As I mentioned, while I'm legally blind, this is something I didn't know from ophthalmology, I was unaware if you lose a lot of vision quickly or you 
just lose a lot of vision in general when your eyesight's been healthy. Before that, your brain tries to cope. And often what it does is create two main forms of hallucinations. This is Charles Bonnet syndrome, which is a fairly common and unfortunately rarely discussed manifestation of patients that are losing vision quickly. And in my case, more than the vision loss, as I look at, at you and I look at the screen, I'm, I think I've got a clear picture of what I'm seeing. Sometimes I'm right, sometimes it's wrong. And for me, I tend to see a lot of incorrect information and I don't necessarily know that that's the case. So for example, patients with Charles Bonnet syndrome either have simple repeating patterns of lights and shapes, or they have more complex hallucinations. Often they see dragons, disembodied heads, strange landscapes for seemingly no reason, and it could be for minutes or it could be for hours. I no longer drive, not because anyone said it's not safe for you to drive. There's actually not a clear-cut clinical point you get to in North Carolina where they'll take the keys away. I can look at an intersection and it might look clear to me. There could be three cars. There could be someone walking a dog. My wife laughs. She drives us to the park to walk our dogs and wave at somebody and she'll kind of go, what, what are you waving at? There's no one here. Or I'll start grinning and she'll go, what's a dog look like? There's not a dog. So she's been trying to figure out how she can best help and it's something even in my network of close friends that I built who've experienced vision loss, it's not something many of them have experienced themselves, even though, as I mentioned, it is fairly common for individuals losing eyesight. So I think she struggles to figure out what's the most helpful thing she can do. For me, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I can best support her because, like I said, I think this is much more difficult for her than it is for me. We have built locally a network of a pretty small group, but a small group of couples where one partner has experienced profound vision loss and the other has stepped into a role, not as caregiver, but care partner. And they've had some frank conversations about what, what's most annoying, lessons learned, things they wish they knew early on. So in that regard, I'm hopeful that my lovely wife, Nina, has been able to learn some of those lessons without learning in the hard way, if that makes sense. So on, on my end, I just try to consistently let her know I care, I love her, I really appreciate what she's doing. And I know this isn't a strange and rare disease or a terminal illness. I was very frank with her about what was going on. And I said, I know you love me, I love you, but I understand if this isn't what you signed up for. I know you don't want to hear this, but I am giving you an out. And she kind of looked at me like I had two heads, which is uh, sometimes how I look at her, I guess. And she said, you're nuts. I'm not doing that. So all of, all of those things, you know, dialogue and humor, I think has really been the biggest. She sounds like a very special woman. How then does healthcare respond to you? Because you talked about the doctor who made the diagnosis, not having the best bedside manner. How are your healthcare providers with you now? That, one, that one's interesting. With Wolfram-like syndrome or Wolfram, it's all about sort of building out a hub-and-spoke model for care where you have one clinician 
seeing you most often. In my case, interestingly enough, it's my glaucoma specialist because the treatment and evaluation is, is the same. I have my key opinion leader in endoplasmics, reticulum stress disorders. I have a specialized neurologist. I've got my local neurologist. And truthfully, with the pandemic, I've been able to see the glaucoma doctor quarterly, sometimes more often. I haven't had anything that's required a trip to St. Louis for some of the specialty care. My local neurologist, who I'd seen for years, we had a, a very honest conversation about what I needed. He seemed very inquisitive and very eager to support me. Haven't heard from him since. So thinking about the glaucoma doctor in particular, I let her know that one of the things that happened as a result of my ophthalmic uh, advocacy is I got approached to write a recurring feature in glaucoma today. And oftentimes I'm writing about the interactions we have together, the interactions I have with other eye care professionals. And I know she gets a copy of Glaucoma Today. Pretty much all 11,000 clinicians that focus on this specialty receive it. And I know I've definitely shared information I've shared with her that has not made an impression with the wider audience. And I think she, she sort of gets it, but she really doesn't because I'm definitely not the usual patient she's used to seeing. She's used to 85-year-olds with type 2 diabetes, you know, all the other things going on with, with aging. And I come in under 40, uh, not diabetic yet, though with Wolfram syndrome, I suspect I will be soon enough. Working in advocacy, not afraid to express what I need out of a clinical encounter. And I'm not getting, she's definitely receptive to it, but I think it's, it's just hard. You see a patient a couple times a year, and then it's just back to getting 12 minutes with your patient and they're 15 more in the waiting room. So I'm fortunate in that I haven't really needed anything extra from her. What I've needed, I've asked for, and she's been able to, to get. But if I needed any specialized care, I think I would really be on my own and with that clinician in St. Louis, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I come to it as a family physician and I'm thinking about this from the family physician perspective. You're somebody who clearly needs specialized attention with regard to the condition that you have. Not many family physicians will know much about the diagnosis that you've mentioned. However, many of them will know about diabetes. Many of them will know about many other conditions that you may encounter as you get past your 40s into your 50s and 60s and so on. Have you thought about that and how you will negotiate that in time? Yeah, I, I have. What I need to do, and I know I need to be better at it, is really find a family physician who is amenable to sort of working with me to choreograph or, or quarterback that care I've got a couple things going on right now as a result of the Wolfram-like syndrome that I've been able to sort of work through on my own. But as I get older, given genetics and family histories, I'm fairly confident I'll become a more complex patient, in which case I'm definitely going to need someone to work with me on that. And I think primary care, family medicine, that's absolutely the right specialty 
to navigate those uncharted waters. I also want to touch on something you mentioned or hinted at way back in the conversation. You said that you were a white and privileged patient. For many who would not define themselves in that way, this would have been a very different journey. Do you want to explore that a bit? So I'll talk about it both in terms of the diagnostic journey, access to care, and my advocacy work as well. So at the time of diagnosis, I had pretty, pretty good. I was going to say wonderful, but you know, nothing's really wonderful. Employer-sponsored insurance. There was a low deductible. I had a lot of flexibility with where I went. I had been traveling for work using my own credit card. So I had all these airline miles. I had hotel points. I was able to go to Philadelphia with very little notice. I was able to get in with one of the best glaucoma docs on the planet. I was able to go get follow-up care. I think I went back to Philadelphia another two times. That's not the norm, certainly not the norm for most patients in the United States. Coming from clinical research, very few clinicians know about clinical research as a care option. Patients, when you talk to them, I'd be interested in learning about clinical studies. Now they told me what they are, but I expect to learn from a trusted source of clinical information, my, my doctor, my nurse practitioner, and there's that disconnect. Working in clinical research, that was coming from a privileged position where I know how clinical development happens. I was able to actually, it's on a webinar about two and a half years ago now, as patients as partners, I was on a, a patient panel and I shared a bit about my diagnosis, though I didn't mention the condition by name, my symptoms, my experience. And I got a message from the head of medical affairs at the Cambridge-based biotech that is looking to repurpose a Parkinson's or ALS drug for my condition. She figured out who I was. That wouldn't happen for other patients. And then last but not least, having worked in research for 13 years, having worked in advocacy as a getting older obviously white presenting male, I have this duty because people want to listen to whatever I say. They're willing to listen. So I've been very aware that there are some tremendous advocates who have been doing this a lot longer than I have. They've got much more important things to say. If I'm able to help them either find a receptive audience, a platform, if I'm able to work with organizations like Patients Rising, teaching their advocacy masterclass to help develop new advocates that have an important message, but they're not sure how to share it, the best ways to connect. That's what it's all about for me. And none of that would be possible if I were not an older white male with this specialized experience, access to insurance and resources. The Journal of Health Design fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. Thank you. It's fantastic that you acknowledge that because it's a key part of the story. But at the same time, I think you are in a unique position to make a huge difference for patients. As you say, people are willing to listen. It's not just the patients, but it's also the companies that you would be working with. And I wanted to explore something else with you in that for many of these companies, 
getting participants in clinical trials is the first step towards a lot of profit. They will do very well out of whatever it is that they are developing. For the patients who they are hard to reach, quote unquote, those patients and their communities do not benefit from the profits of that company. And I wonder whether there is scope to negotiate a deal where whilst ever they are recruiting from those communities, they're giving back to those communities by dint of the profits they're going to make from those drugs. I guess I'll start by setting the stage here because I know it's not an area that many are familiar with. When you talk about clinical research, a lot of it is a numbers game. So for starters, for every 10,000 drugs discovered or naturally occurring substances where they think there might be some medicinal value, for each 10,000 that go into the drug discovery process, only one makes it out through regulatory approval. Because of a lot of the inherent inefficiencies in research, it takes on average between 10 and 12 years and $2.6 billion to get there. And if that weren't bad enough, it takes so much time and so much money because 86% of these trials fail to meet timelines and patient recruitment is the greatest source of delay. So one of the things I am most excited to spend my time talking about is not only clinical research as a care option, building awareness and educating there, but helping regulators, helping drug and device developers understand patient-focused drug development, unmet needs, quality of life impacts, preferences for medication delivery, so that they can ideally design a less burdensome, more appealing clinical trial. You know, there's nothing worse than when I'm looking at a protocol that's been amended four times, and the primary outcome of interest isn't interesting to patients. The delivery mechanism is something that's overwhelmingly burdensome or unappealing. You know, just thinking about myself, again, the super privileged position, I live four blocks away from Duke University Medical Center, but I don't drive. It's not a pedestrian-friendly route. If I wanted to participate in a traditional study at Duke, I'd be out of luck. It's even worse if I had to travel to St. Louis. So part of that then also becomes how do we democratize access to research? Thinking about the U.S. again, and the stats differ from country to country, 70% of potential patients live more than two hours away from a clinical research site. So we look at the time, we look at the 86% of studies that fail to meet those timelines, it makes sense. We're not doing anything to, to set ourselves up for success. So thinking about that patient-focused drug development approach, if we can connect patients, those that support them, the advocacy groups that represent them, with those looking to develop a new drug or device for their particular condition, and I'm not interested in getting them connected during the phase two clinical trial. I'm saying when you're getting ready for the investigational new drug application to get approved so you can move into the clinic. When you're thinking about developing your program for Wolfram syndrome, talk to patients, talk to the community to make sure that what you're working on makes sense or ideally talk to them before you try to figure out what you want to do. You know, you have a promising potential therapeutic. You have some thoughts, but let's talk to the patients because there's nothing worse than spending all that time and money and wasting valuable resources to find out that 
you should have just talked to patients and you could have avoided a lot of issues there. So by doing that, it's a roundabout way of saying, you know, there's money left over there. There are ways to support those patient advocacy organizations, to get them involved, to work with them, to better understand the patient perspective, to share resources, to share information. So there are ways to take some of that money that would have been wasted and some of the money that you are saving and realistically, the additional money you're you're bringing in because you're bringing in faster if you are getting to market to give some of that back to the communities you serve because ultimately everyone in clinical research, in, in medicine, patients are the individuals we serve. That's what it's all about. So I think there are lots of ways we can not only involve them, but also support them and give back. I want to push you a little bit further and say for many chronic conditions, and I think Wolfram syndrome is a difficult one because it isn't socially, there aren't social determinants of health there. Effectively, you've got this as a genetic condition. It's not your lifestyle or whatever that has led to it. But for many others, let's say diabetes, the one that really is problematic at the moment, heart disease, cancer to an extent, Lifestyle factors are really quite important. It would be so much better for us not to have to rely on pharmaceuticals and not develop the condition in the first place. That's where I'm getting to with the discussion around patients and patient involvement in clinical trials. If pharma, and I know that it's $2.6 billion you mentioned just to get a drug to the point where it's, it's close to getting launched into the market, if some of the profit could be put back into addressing some of the social determinants so the need for those drugs is reduced, that would be a wonderful outcome. Are advocates having those conversations with the industry? So this is a great question and a topic near and dear to my heart as a public health professional by training. For a lot of chronic conditions, I'm actually thinking about it now. There's a park um, about a fifth of a mile from my my home in in Durham, North Carolina, that has been adopted by GlaxoSmithKline. So I believe that means they're responsible for, I guess, paying for a portion of, I'm thinking about it, it doesn't actually make sense. The city cleans it up, but they have sponsored, there's some financial commitment where they're helping to either keep the park clean, purchase new playground equipment. They're making it more usable. They're making sure it's better lit. So, you know, when you do have time coming off work and you're you're getting ready to make dinner for the family, maybe go to the second job, walking the dog, you have a place where you can go, you can move, you can be active. Unfortunately, they're free talking social determinants out. There aren't any sidewalks on the way. It's not particularly patient friendly or pedestrian friendly. But in in a, a dream world, really, we would prevent every condition we can prevent and there wouldn't be need for pharmaceutical or device development. I'd love to put myself out of business. I think one one easy thing that can be done, and I used to do this when I was on the clinical research site side, we tried to build awareness of our place in the community. We wanted to build relationships before a clinical trial cropped up and there was a need to find patients when they're, you know, sometimes involved in the most stressful and frightening phases of their lives. 
it's the little things, right? We used to go to community health fairs. We provide free screening. We provide educational information. That was a simple way to hopefully detect and address connections to care big disease before it spiraled out of control. I think there are definitely avenues and opportunities to partner with public health agencies, you know, but at, at its core, pharmaceutical and, and biotechnology firms are, are in the business of making money for providing a product or a service. You know, I, I don't begrudge anyone that, but certainly we could change the way we allocate resources. We can make sure when we spend all of this money developing a new drug, I understand the way research is funded in the U.S. It's not not usually government funded like project, like uh, Operation Warp Speed. People want to make their money back. I get that. But there's nothing worse than having an approval and patients not having access to it, not being able to afford it. So this all sort of gets back to that patient-focused drug development. And I have not been on a patient advisory board or user experience session yet, and I'm hopeful it will happen soon, where a patient is talking about their unmet needs, the quality of life impacts, and they say, look, I'm not looking for a new therapy. I'm looking for a place where I can go and get active, where I can go for a walk. I'm looking for healthy food in my neighborhood. I'm sure those conversations are happening. I want them to be happening more often. And I want those that do have access to these resources, my, myself included, to keep some of these things in mind when we're talking about how can we ease patient burden. The biggest thing we could do is we can prevent people from becoming patients. And that, that comes back to social determinants of health and investing in your community. You're right to describe it as a dream world, and I understand where that comes from. But of course, it all starts with a dream. If you can imagine it, it will happen. Richie Khan, it's been an absolute joy spending time with you. You've been extraordinarily generous with your ideas and your energy and your passion for what is clearly something very close to your heart. You are making a difference. We hear you right around the world. Thank you for being part of this. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I sincerely appreciate it and look forward to continuing the conversation. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.